This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. To spread grace, speak truth, restart, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom, the kingdom, yes it is, gotta spread the word. With you no good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, that's me. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. How you feeling today, Chris? Oh, I feel pretty good. Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well, man. Had a really busy week last week. I got to be on a panel uh, for Georgetown, uh, uh, John Carr, uh, on a conversation about, you know, moving forward. What does the pro-life, you know, what does it mean to be pro-life after Dobbs? And then... uh, that same day did a panel for the uh, Aspen Institute in regard to religious liberty. So uh, shout out to all those folks and uh, thanks for in, uh, involving the and campaign in those conversations. Uh, got some some good feedback on that, man, but a, a really busy week. One thing that happened or was a lot there was a lot of talk, at least on social media and um, some, you know, in some other places was some of the stuff that they're finding, or I guess, I don't know what happened, Chris. I think somebody hacked into Hunter Biden's like laptop or his cloud or something happened where all these videos came out. Uh, there's videos of him using drugs, videos with prostitutes, all kind of stuff. And uh, I will say this, I, I do think it was, this was handled improperly by the media because they said none of this existed. And there's some other things that may deal with him and his father and things that were said. Uh, in regard to that, that that may be relevant. What to me is not relevant and improper, especially for Christians, is just to be pouncing on this man and, you know, kind of adding to the humiliation of everything that's going on. I don't know about you, but I think most of us have family members who have drug addictions, who have other problems. And I don't think we would want people treating them like they're treating Hunter Biden. So I would say as Christians, uh, before you retweet something, before you kind of share it, why don't you take a second to pray for the man and you may reconsider uh, what you were going to do from there. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you. Uh, you know, there, there's, there is a political conversation, um, but most of it doesn't have to do with issues of addiction and you know, the various types of addiction that you see there. And I think it's, you know, it's incumbent upon us to be able to distinguish between those things, uh, have some, some decency and some compassion. So, you know, I agree yeah, with you yeah. and I urge us in that direction. Republican or Democrat, we as Christians should be able to see why some of this stuff is irrelevant and we certainly shouldn't be piling on in that regard. So pray for the man, pray for others who are struggling with addiction and other issues. These are things that we should be trying to help people through, not uh, push them down even further or their family members even further when it comes to those things. So we got a lot to talk about today. As always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Appreciate that partnership. 
But let's go ahead and get into it, Chris. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. For any group of people or a nation, a key part of preparation is ascertaining the numbers and vital statistics of the group, counting the number of people you have to go into battle or the number of people that you have to feed or transport is a pretty basic exercise of preparation. In the book of Numbers, this is even taken into consideration. We see God's people preparing for the journey into the promised land and conducting a census. In the United States, a census is legally mandated in the Constitution every 10 years. Our last census was in 2020, and our first census ever was in 1790. And I say, and that was right after the American Revolution. So I say we loosely. I don't think uh, me and uh, uh, Chris's people were included in that census, but that's a whole different uh, conversation. The data from the, the census uh, collection uh, updates us on the population and on a number of demographic matters. It's used to make all kinds of predictions and to revise apportionment based on the most recent data and what's really been trending Chris for for some time the US is expected to be a minority majority or minority white uh, uh, country by 2045 now based on voting trends you would think that this was a huge win and great news for the Democratic Party since they've long had almost a monopoly on minority voters. Many assume the future of the country would be handed to the Democrats based on this. They say that uh, uh, demographics are the future and the future would kind of be handed to them. The idea was almost taken for granted by a lot of political strategists, including conservatives, who basically wrote off a lot of minority voters. The, The idea was called, I think, demographics are destiny and that the demographics handed everything to the Democrats. Well, not so fast. Recent polls are showing that demographics might not hand the future to Democrats in the way that people thought. These polls are showing that race might not be the best predictor or indicator of voting trends. It appears that the class divide may be playing a significant role as well, if not a greater role in the future. And the class divide breaks along different lines than it used to. Sagar on Jetty, who is the co-host of Breaking Points, with which me and Chris believe is a great alternative to cable news. Turn off the cable news, turn on Breaking Points on YouTube or on iTunes or and so on. But on Jetty did a really thorough breakdown of this phenomenon. Now, usually when we talk about class, we're primarily talking about income. But on Jetty suggests that that should change. Class today, he says, is really more a product of worldview And worldview is often based on educational attainment. He says this, a four year college degree is more of a proxy for how Americans see the world than income. If you went to a four year college, you're more likely to hold liberal views, not to be religious and to be sympathetic to the elite narrative. This is true, especially of white college educated people, but also it's true of uh, college-educated minorities who probably wouldn't want, want this to be heard or, or, or admit this, but who often seem to follow or mirror their white counterparts when it comes to ideology. This group altogether, uh, collectively, is overwhelmingly 
Democrat. They vote for the Democratic Party. Now, you might be saying, well, education correlates with income. Yes, no, kind of not as much as it used to. A lot of college graduates make less than a plumber or a truck driver that didn't go to college. The working class person in that instance has a higher income, but is more likely to vote for Republicans because based on their worldview. So they're still working class, even though they make more than some people who may appear to be because of their education, upper class based on worldview. Believe it or not, and I know Chris knows this, Trump increased the GOP's vote share amongst every demographic except white college educated men. White college educated men and women were the swing vote behind Biden's victory. Anjetty says that 2020 was the most racially depolarized election of our lifetime with record numbers of Latinos and black men voting Republican. Uh, he used he, he cites a New York Times article that says Republicans appear to be making new inroads among non-white and working class voters, perhaps especially Hispanic voters who remain more concerned about the economy and inflation than abortion rights and guns. The New York Times story goes on to say for the first time uh, in for, for the first time, a national survey showed that Democrats had a larger share of support among white college graduates than among non-white voters. Let me say that again. For the first time in a national survey, Democrats had a larger share of support among white college graduates than among non-white voters, a striking indication of the shifting balance of political en energy in the Democratic coalition. As recently as the 2016 congressional elections, Democrats won more than 70% of non-white voters while losing among white college graduates. All right. So this is changing. The liberal backlash against conservative advances in the courts uh, appears to have helped Democrats most among white college graduates who are relatively liberal and often insulated by their affluence from economic woes. Just 17 percent of white college educated Biden voters said an economic issue was the most important one facing the country, less less than for any other racial or educational group. Now, I want you all to keep in mind these are this is this is an inter interesting swing. I want you to keep in mind that only 40 percent of Americans have a college degree. And I think only about 14 percent have a graduate school degree. But these folks with the graduate school degrees in the professional class seem to be the one controlling the Democratic Party's agenda. And so you see this party who I think a lot of people would want to say represents the working class really becoming in a lot of ways the party of white elites and, and the folks who kind of follow that ideology along with white elites. Outside. Now, let me say this, though, before I pass it to you, Chris, I think this is important. I would say, and this is just my opinion, outside of Trump's populist rhetoric and maybe a few trade policy changes, I don't believe that Republicans did much of anything at all to earn this uh, uh, shift. It mostly seems like a reaction to a bad economy and progressive cultural excesses. And so I don't think they did much for this to happen. And I also don't think that they have a plan to maintain it. So I would kind of uh, add that to the overall analysis. Chris, 
What do you gain from this, what they're calling the college divide? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that uh, folks who have been working in sort of politics and in civics have seen. Uh, even if you think about why we launched the uh, the AND campaign, it's very much down that same kind of road that there is a, a need for a realignment in our politics. And there's almost a realignment that's sort of happening uh, organically. And, uh, you know, there, there's a need for leaders and organizations to help uh, to guide that kind of realignment. I think it's helpful to point out uh, that that college orientation uh, because it it says something about what's happening in our culture today, right? Because if you think about this college divide, is actually uh, a sort of a lagging indicator, right? Because this is now the sort of political and civic behavior of people who have been to four year colleges uh, and universities, um, and when you look at a lot of the current. Um, debate and dialogue, uh, it does raise the question, if then we are taking the kind of ideas that have been taught in colleges for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, and now we see that we're trying to take those ideas and put them into high schools, put them into grammar schools, put them much more into sort of popular culture, uh, media, it sort of frames how we report the news. Uh, it it, it should make both, uh, certainly both sides of our politics, but those of us who want to be a little bit above just politics and think about where our culture and our society is going, um, it should give us some urgency around how we want to work in this space. Uh, because the more you allow these kinds of ideas that are often positioned as enlightenment and, um, you know, sort of advanced thought, uh, to be to be placed upon people, especially at younger and younger ages, uh, I think the more at risk our uh, society and our culture becomes. Uh, so that's something that we that we see in this sort of analysis. And, and the last thing that I will say uh, is that it also points to uh, one of the many ways that I think that the church in particular, uh, in in particular, and especially the Black Church, uh, has a great opportunity and a unique contribution to make here. Because I, I would argue that the Black Church has been uh, one of those places where you know a a high value on education existed alongside a high value on classic values, um, and that's I think that's a unique contribution uh, that that the Black Church has to make and uh, and the church in general. Uh, so. You know, we, we need to look at that in terms of, of really valuing the need for our witness and the reflection on the uh, the history of the black church and how that all works um, as a as sort of a model for things that we can do and how we can sort of approach this existing political realignment, because it's certainly happening. Um, and I think you uh, alluded to this well, neither side has a real grasp on how to deal with it. Um, yeah. the, the left continues to overreach. Uh, the right right now is being the uh, the beneficiary of the left's overreach, but still there's not really a structured you know sort of thought on how to how to actually be the party, either party, be the party of working families. Um, you know, and, and sort of the the average everyday American, uh, you know, because the, the average everyday American is neither a cultural progressive 
or a extreme deficit hawk, right? Like folks are trying to live their lives uh, and and care for their families. And I think any if whichever party makes the adjustment first is going to be the the ultimate beneficiary of this sort of realignment. Yeah, I'll say this, I, and it goes along with what you were saying. I think the black church, and I've said long said this, but I think the black church is a sleeping giant when it comes to this conversation. Um, it is the X factor, but I would say even within the black church, we have to decide, especially those who are in the professional class, those who are peers with the elite, we have to decide whether we're going to just follow the secular progressive ideology or whether we're going to lean into the best parts of our legacy. Uh, if we do the latter, I think that we can have a a very positive effect on what's going on and kind of correct the problems on, that are going on on both sides. Now, when you, you made a very good point about education and really what this education is saying, right, the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the impact that education is having, uh, because it plays in, you know, who's teaching our children and where they went to school and who taught them plays into the public school conversation. It plays into the parental rights conversation, which is a place where Democrats are getting crushed and I would say are getting crushed for good reason. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm pro-education, right? I'm, 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 I'm in this professional class, although I don't adhere to many of their values. I think they get a lot of things wrong. I think they lack wisdom, even with all the information and degrees they have. So I'm, I'm pro-education, but I would warn against the conclusion that educated voters are getting the issues right and uneducated voters are just ignorant and getting these issues wrong. If, if that's how you're going to deal with it with no nuance, I think you're going to be getting this wrong. Right um, now, while education is valuable, Chris, the numbers that we're seeing might be a result of a lack of ideological diversity in universities. Right. There might be a good deal of indoctrination going on where college educated people are becoming more liberal, not because they're smarter which is the the bad assumption I think some people make, but because their lessons have had a certain leftward spin and their identity as elite kind of forms their opinion more than actually thinking through the issues. So we can either say that, yeah, they're uneducated, so they just don't get it. Or within our education, there might be some good things there, but there might always be also be a miseducation or an indoctrination that's separating us from the common man who's actually getting something right and actually has some wisdom that we don't see. Yeah. Just something to think about, Chris. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that that subtle nuance, but I think really important of distinguishing between uh, the schooled and the educated, uh, because there are, uh, I, I would argue that there are multiple platforms for education. Uh, and school is one of them. Uh, and I am, I'm pro education and I'm pro school. Uh, but if we, if we can delineate between school and education, uh, then we can begin to have that conversation about what kind of education, uh, a, a degree from a certain university, um, might represent. Uh, and and then that could lead us more clearly into the conversation about uh, that sort of leftward bias that may exist in uh, the university setting today, uh, and the need for uh, you know perhaps greater ideological diversity in the academy. Uh, and 
that is, uh, you know, that's something that we need to have reflection on both in the secular and the religious uh, academic space, right? Um, yeah. Because it is an important, um, I think it's an important question just to maintain a healthy academic environment. Uh, but certainly, if as as we continue to vest the the schooled, degreed, elite class with more cultural uh, power, we need to really be having a conversation about what is being uh, taught at the university. Yeah, that's right, man. I mean, there's there's a lot of things in flux right now. We see how uh, sometimes politics is downstream from education and how class, the lines upon which we view class or should view class, are changing. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, I'm going to be straight up with you. I truly believe that the housing crisis is one of the biggest problems or really one of the biggest injustices in America today. There's a number of issues in our housing market that are preventing low income people from having any housing stability in certain cities. And really, it's preventing them from flourishing in several respects. One of the issues is substandard living conditions and violence. A few weeks ago, Chris, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is the local newspaper here in Atlanta, did an in-depth investigative report about code violations and violence in apartment complexes and the business model that perpetuates the issue. Here's where it starts off. It says years of tracking homicides across metro Atlanta reveal a bleak and persistent reality. Murders cluster at a cer- at certain apartment complexes. The, the AJC wanted to find out why. And here's what they found, Chris. They found a potent mix of lax security, deferred maintenance, governmental inertia and Georgia's weak tenant protection laws have rendered much of the region's affordable housing barely habitable. This is in America. This is a first world country, a developed nation. They said three-fourths of the region's most dangerous apartments belonged, listen to this, three-fourths of the region's most dangerous apartments belonged to private equity firms or other absentee investors under whom crime and squalor are not so much bad fortune as collateral damage from a widely followed business model. These owners typically come in and immediately raise rents perform merely cosmetic renovations, and limit spending on security and maintenance. Many flip the properties in short order, nearly doubling their money in no more than two or three years. Often the next owners repeat the cycle. Along the way, profits are accumulated, often bolstered by taxpayers. Government rental assistance programs, tax credits, and a disproportionate use of police, fire, and other public uh, services transform rundown complexes into valuable assets for investors. These complexes are beset by violent crime and often by horrific living conditions. We're talking about rats and garbage, leaking pipes and unmitigated mold that sicken many residents, especially children. More than 13,000 school age children live in in 144 of the complexes in Atlanta. 
The complexes are overwhelmingly occupied by people of color. 97% of the properties identified as the most dangerous have a majority non-white population. 162 complexes accounted for one of every five homicides in Metro Atlanta in recent years. Now, as you looked at the business model of these private equity firms, you saw all the things they were doing. They didn't want to fix anything. They were raising the rents while not fixing anything. There were rats and mold and all this other stuff. But you know what didn't play a role seemingly in their calculus? The people. So you have these private equity firms who are buying up all this property, getting tax credits uh, from the government and creating terribly inhumane environments for image bearers. And it's all about money. And it's happening right up beneath our nose. And I think that Christians need to care about it. These folks are spending not only are they get living in these terrible conditions, they're spending way too much of their income on this housing that is substandard. Again, Christians ought to care. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we certainly ought to care. Uh, there is uh, a, a housing crisis in this country that is not new. Um, you know, when I got into uh, community organizing as a, as a high school student, one of the early campaigns that I worked on was a sort uh, a balanced development ordinance uh, in Chicago, attempting to to pass a balanced development uh, ordinance that would look at some of the issues that have been existing, you know, a long time. Because this was, you know, this was the early two thousands when we we're talking about balanced development and how to make sure that people were able to access a basic level of housing in the city of Chicago and throughout the United States. Um, certainly, you know, there's going to be a kind of housing that people who are able to access, you know, great affluence will be able to attain for themselves. But certainly uh, in the wealthiest nation on the planet, there should be a floor uh, and that floor should not be squalor. People should be able to access uh, a basic quality of housing at an affordable rate. And that's been a problem in this country for a long time. Uh, enter in, in recent years the sort of permanent capital uh, into the space of uh, housing. Uh, and it only exacerbates the problem because now uh, we're finding ways to, to, to profit, you know, off of those, off of that, off of the squalor, the pain uh, and frankly, the oppression of, of, of poor people. Uh, and, and that just shouldn't be allowed. I mean, I think that we need uh, a fresh look at this. I think that we need some, some new regulation in this space, honestly, to just make sure that people are able to access uh, a basic quality of housing. And, and as you said, Christians should care. Christians should care, um, you know, because these are human people, image bearers uh, of, of God who are worthy of, of dignity, love, and compassion. Uh, if you are uh, in the community of folks who identify as as pro-life, as I do, I think you should care about this issue because this inability to access uh, quality housing is certainly one of the major drivers of abortion in this country. Um, and I know you referenced earlier uh, the conversation that you were a part of about a post uh, role uh, kind of America. 
And one of the things that we absolutely need to be doing is, is making sure that we address these types of issues that, that drive folks toward abortion. Uh, and lack of access to quality affordable housing is certainly one of the major ones. Uh, so yes, Christians uh, should not only care about this, um, but we should make this part of our uh, politics and our civic engagement. Um, and so whatever level of politics and civics you are engaged with, um, if you are just a voter, make this part of how you analyze who you vote for. If you get involved further, you know, if you volunteer on campaigns, if you're running for office, if you work in the space, um, figure out ways to bring this into the conversation because it's really, really important. Yeah. And one of the things that I, we, we need to do is we need to look at the way these private equity firms are doing this and regulate our housing to make it harder for them to just come in, be there for two or three years, make no improvements, raise the rents and just get out. Because I'll be honest with you, Chris, you know, part of it is regulation. Part of it is we just need to change the complete calculus of how they go about this, uh, because what I'm hearing, rats, crime, this is criminal. This is this is negligence to to the extent of being criminal when you're talking about kids who are being put in these environments and it could affect their, their health for the rest of their lives if they survive the environment. And all these folks are thinking about is money. And so how do we regulate this in a way that's consistent with our system, but also makes it harder for folks to come in and do what they're doing? You also have folks like BlackRock who are buying up all these homes uh, in, in these different cities. And then they're just controlling. They can raise rates any way they want to because they're controlling all the housing there and they're making it to where fewer people own homes. This is all going on. And I'll just add this before I go. A lot of the companies that are doing this, that are exploiting the poor, that are mistreating the poor in these situations. These are the same folks that would shake your hand and pat you on the back for your messages about social justice. These are the folks that are always talking about on social media equality. These are folks who will use the same social justice rhetoric as you see and maybe even support some social justice efforts. And look what they're doing with their other hand. So if you want to give folks a pass and these corporatists a pass just because they say the right thing about social justice and equality, then just know that you can't stop this and refuse to check them. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. (music) 
And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast, Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Chris Butler. Well, Chris, uh, many folks know that you just got finished running a congressional campaign in Illinois. And before we get deep into it, I just want to say and commend you for how you ran that race. You ran hard. You were diligent. Uh, any dollar anybody gave to you, I think you uh, did the best that you you could with it. And really, you were for you you know had a formidable campaign. Now it didn't end the way that you wanted it to, but very few people, Christians on either side of the aisle, do I know who stood who stand ten toes down on their convictions while also having the civic pluralism to let people know that I represent everybody. And so, first of all, first and foremost, shout out for that. You are our. Uh, our, our church folk champion for that one, man. I, I appreciate that. And I think it's a model that others can see and hopefully use as they move forward, as we create a stronger base, uh, because you really stood by what you believe. And I've seen so many others say, start out doing it or say they were going to do it and then do something completely different once the campaign gets underway. Well, I just want briefly for you to kind of give some of your reflections on the campaign. You know, there are people listening who've never been a part of a campaign who might want to run uh, sometime. And I want to just give you a chance to reflect and give them some advice in general. Yeah, I I would um, say one, just a thank you to you and to uh, so many people who probably uh, actually who I know definitely will uh, engage with this podcast. Uh, you know, the the support uh, that uh, that you gave personally, Justin, and uh, just folks from the end campaign, folks who listen to this podcast, uh, it, it was really overwhelming. Um, and uh, I think that one thing is, is probably the first place to, to start off. I think that it's incredibly important to have that kind of community around you if you want to get into uh, an election campaign and maintain your values. I, I would say one of the biggest learnings that I had coming out of the of the race is the intensity with which the the pressure comes to leave off of some of these uh, sort of classic values. And and Justin, you know that I did not come into this as, you know, a, a very green person. I, I, I don't think very naive, uh, but even still, I was still a little bit surprised how a, a, a great number of people, folks who I've known uh, and worked with in different sort of political engagements for a long time, uh, were just unwilling uh, and unable to stand uh, even close to me because of some of the uh, positions that I was taking, even though I was taking the same position uh, that they take on a great, great number of uh, issues, probably the per- per- preponderance of the issues, uh, we would agree. Uh, but or those, even in private, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and in private, we'd probably agree even more. Uh, you know, too many times there were folks, you know, who gave me the sort of like private endorsement, but I can't get with you in, in public. And so I, w- I would say you have to be ready for those things. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a, a grueling process, I would say. Uh, it can be, you know, and, and just in terms of your time, uh, the toll that it takes on your family, your finances, your physical body, your mental and emotional strength. Uh, it's a very, very grueling uh, sort of a thing to engage with. And so I, I definitely uh, encourage, I was actually talking to somebody who's thinking about um, running for uh, an, an automatic seat here in Chicago. And that's one of the things that I really uh, would urge is just like, make sure that you are strong. You know, 
you know, before you get into this, because I, I think I was pretty strong going into it. Uh, and I praise God for that because uh, it, it is a very, very demanding process. And so if, if you're not strong, if you are strong going into it, uh, when you come out of it, you're going to need some rest and recovery. Uh, and if you're not strong grow- going into it, I think it could probably be a little bit detrimental. And so I would, I would really just urge that, like on all those levels, make sure that you're spiritually, mentally, physically, financially, you know, sort of family structure, like make sure that stuff is uh, is tight because it's a very, very demanding uh sort of a process. Uh, And then the last observation I'll make and I'll sort of be done is just uh, that we have to keep engaging in this way because there is no, there's no lane for us uh, right now. Uh, We were talking about the realignment that is happening uh, and I really do see it happening. I saw it happening in real time in the campaign that I ran, but it's it's not set yet. Um, You still have left, right. There's no lane for and campaign type people. And I think the only way you make that lane uh, is for people to continue to engage. So I wasn't the only person who ran for office. Like Dr. Jaha Howard ran down there in, in Georgia. And we just need people you know, to continue to get into campaigns, take this approach, because little by little uh, is how you actually build that lane. And as we said in the, in the last segment, there is a need for leadership and organization to sort of shepherd this realignment because uh, it's happening organically. But I think to to accelerate uh, and to to ensure that it has the, uh, a positive impact on our politics, there's a need for leadership and organization to shepherd the realignment. And I think part of that is having people who take this sort of, uh, broadly speaking, and campaign uh, approach to civics and politics, to have folks like that in the arena election after election is part of how you shepherd that realignment. So I, I encourage people who are uh, in a place where you can do it uh, to consider it. So you have to be strong mentally, emotionally, but also strong in your faith because there will be temptation. I can guarantee, I've run many a campaigns, I can guarantee you that temptation will be there and will you have the fortitude to withstand it? Is one of the one of the things that 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 comes up. So what I'm hearing from you, Chris, is it ain't easy. You got to count the cost, but Christians need to run. And let me tell you this, guys, as the and campaign grows, we're trying to make it so Christians are better prepared and equipped to do things like that. So that's why I bring up our Christian Civic Leadership Academy, where we're going to be training Christians to do exactly that. So that not only if you want to run, but some of you just want to be a part of a campaign or run a manage a campaign. We're going to give you those opportunities and try to help the body as much as we can be prepared for what Chris was just telling y'all about. Any last words, Chris? Yeah, I I would just say that last piece that you mentioned, that's one thing that I left off, but it's really important. The thing that I'm probably the most proud of uh, in the campaign that we ran is the team that we built. We actually were able to put together a team of very highly skilled people uh, who were ideologically aligned with the campaign. Um, and and we, we talked all through the campaign about the internal integrity of the campaign. Uh, and I think that's incredibly important because that is a big part of you being able to stay faithful is having your your team with you uh, on the on that front. Absolutely. Well, that's all we got. If you want to support the and campaign, you know, you can go to andcampaign.com and you can donate or you can go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics. Become a part of the movement. Don't just watch from the sidelines. We're trying to do something big here. You should be a part of it because it's just getting going. Yeah. 
Uh, as usual, you know what it is. And camp, there's a cross that neither p- political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and want to surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. We'll holla at you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.